This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I also saw the craziest mountainside I've ever seen. And remember, I'm a lifelong geologist, but imagine, imagine a thick stack of layers of clay. Some are really vividly bright brick red and the ones in between a light tan. Imagine making a stack of you know, six or eight layers of those things and then bending it into gentle folds and then cutting and shearing it. So these massive thick layers of half billion year old rocks bent and twisted and folded and exposed on this mountainside in honest to God, full technicolor. It was absolutely just wild. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. Welcome to the final solo episode of Kathy Sullivan Explores for 2022. I thought it'd be fun to close the year out with a couple of stories from my latest grand expedition. I spent most of September in the Arctic with Lindblad National Geographic, Norway, Greenland, Iceland, several of my very favorite places. And oddly, although I grew up in Southern California, I've always been drawn to high latitudes for some reason, you know, both Arctic in the north and Antarctica in the south. So this was a really great expedition to go far north again and, and get back to some of those favorite places. The scenery through the whole voyage, I mean, it's beyond spectacular. You know, it all defies, really defies description, but let me give it a bit of a try. We started in the far north of Norway, which I've always found to be a fascinating place. The Lofoten Islands, which is that little group that sort of sticks off the top of Norway, that is just an amazing landscape. It reminds me of, of sailing among witches' hats, these very tall, steep peaks with this, these little flat skirts of land, like the brim of a witch's hat. And all, all the little villages, all the little fishing towns are clustered on the brim of those hats. So you have these big gray and green looming peaks this little flat, very low, flat skirt of land dotted with the typically red and yellow and, and your bright wooden houses of Norwegian coastal voyages. The Lofoten Alps and the mountains in that part of Norway, they're four times lower than the Swiss Alps. They're only one quarter as high. And yet somehow the scenery seems just as stunning, the, the sharpness of the slopes and the way these, these big pointed peaks just soar up out of the ocean. 
From the north of Norway, after a couple of days exploring there, we headed west, crossing the North Atlantic, out at sea for a day and a half, and then came across this little tiny fly speck of an island called Jan Mayen. Uh, that's actually a part of Norway, but you know, separated by a thousand and some miles. And it really sits pretty well smack dab in the middle of the North Atlantic. It's actually on the same rift that's tearing Iceland apart. Jan Mayen sits on the northern extension of that, again, hundreds of miles above Iceland. It's this long, kind of skinny island. The southern end of it, the southern three quarters of it at least, is just an amalgam, a coalescing of multiple, countless, low-lying volcanoes. And what you see now are the cinder cones and the you know, the crazy colored slopes of these largely dormant volcanoes. The northern end of the island is a volcano, a 7,000-foot-tall volcano that, again, just soars up out of the ocean. We didn't see a lot of the big volcano because the clouds were pretty low that day, but uh, as we were leaving, we caught a couple of really stunning glimpses of it through breaks in the clouds. But the other thing that was really remarkable and just awe-inspiring about Jan Mayen is against these very dark basaltic ash and lava flows that make up all the southern part of the island. Vegetation is making its way into Jan Mayen, and the vegetation that's there is the most stunningly beautiful fluorescent green. So the contrast of this vividly bright green vegetation against this stark black volcanic landscape was, it was just marvelous. We spent about a half a day exploring ashore on the western side of Jan Mayen and then set out west again towards East Greenland, which was kind of the central focal point of our whole trip. Specifically into the Northeast Greenland National Park, plus a little bit of time in Skorsbysund, which is the big forked fjord on the east coast of Greenland that you can spot in an instant on any world map. So cruising through light pack ice, skirting larger bergs, looking for wildlife, you know, whales, seabirds, polar bears, of course, maybe walruses. The ice was sparse enough that we knew our chances of seeing walrus or polar bear up close were pretty low because you get your best views of those guys when they've hauled out on a piece of ice and you can inch the ship slowly up near them and watch them without disturbing them. So the focal point here, again, it became the geology. And this is like Yosemite Grand Canyon scale spectacular geology. The peaks surrounding Scoresbysund, again, they soar almost vertically up from the fjord, six to 7,000 feet high, the spikiest summits I've ever seen. These are not mountains that have been rounded off by a glacier or even carved by rivers. They were partly formed by the glaciers spilling off the Greenland ice shelf, but the peaks that you see today, they're the result of frost shattering. Every time a little bit of water gets into a crack in the rock, in the summer or fall, and then it becomes winter and the water freezes, water expands as it freezes. And so that's like pushing your neighbors aside in a crowded theater. It shoves the rocks apart and just shatters the rock into tiny little bits. So you get these absolutely, absolutely craggly, jagged, 6,000 foot tall mountains like right above the ship. I also saw the craziest mountainside I've ever seen. And remember, I'm a lifelong geologist, but imagine, imagine a thick stack of layers of clay 
Some are really vividly bright brick red, and the ones in between are light tan. Imagine making a stack of you know, six or eight layers of those things, and then bending it into gentle folds, and then cutting and shearing it. So these massive thick layers of half billion year old rocks bent and twisted and folded and exposed on this mountainside in honest to God, full technicolor. It was absolutely just wild. And finally onto Iceland for our final stops and getting off the ship at the end of the expedition. And Iceland, of course, is absolutely, truly a marine geologist's paradise. The way the Atlantic Ocean is splitting apart all the way from the tip of South America up into the Arctic, that mechanism is exposed on land in Iceland. You can walk the Rift Valley. You can stand with one foot on what is essentially the European plate that's moving to the east and another foot on the American plate that's moving to the west. The plates are only moving at about the same rate that your fingernails grow, so it's not like you're going to feel your feet coming apart as you stand there. But it is kind of mind-boggling to look at that terrain and see this faulted and, and rifted valley just chopped into chunks and coming apart. And of course, culture and history intersect with that rift in the middle of Iceland because, by all reports, the world's oldest and first democratic parliament met in like 900 AD back in one of the, one of the clefts, one of these little drop-down valleys in this rift zone the site of the founding of the first democratic parliament. Still a very sacred place in Iceland's government and, and democracy today. So, as you can probably tell, I loved the whole experience. I mean, everything I've described of the natural experience and the geology, but also the ship and the crew and my fellow explorers. I'm always fascinated by my fellow passengers on these Lindblad Nat Geo expeditions. You know, where are they from? What have they done? What was their life about? What was their profession or their life pattern? And what draws them to expeditions like this? Where else in the world have they traveled on, on a similar kind of voyage of exploration and discovery? This bunch on this expedition definitely had some really great stories. We had two best-selling authors in our number, for example, including best-selling thriller writer Lisa Gardner, who has sold some 23 million copies. I mean, that's really saying something. And then there was another couple, Catherine and Bill, who set off straight out of college, which I'm guessing was back in the mid or late 70s, maybe early 80s. And they made their way overland, across England, down through Europe, through Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iran, to India and then across Africa before landing in South Africa to work for several years. Can you imagine doing that today in your 20s? I mean, dead broke, picking up rides along the way, you know, all sorts of grand tales about being accosted at border crossings by you know, armed rebels and armed police forces and you know, schmoozing their way out of those encounters. If you could even do it safely today, it would definitely drive your parents nuts. But the other interesting thing I did, visiting with my passengers on the expedition, was I conducted a little bit of an experiment that I came up with with this podcast theme, Spaceship Not Required in Mind. So I decided to ask a number of the guests on this really remarkable voyage, do you consider yourself an explorer? Remember, we're in the high Arctic. We're hiking and cruising around in zodiacs every single day. We're learning about utterly new environments. And... That, to me, is exploring. 
So I was quite surprised that most of the people I asked said no. They did not consider themselves to be an explorer. Then I asked the first follow-up question. Well, what does exploring mean to you? And guess what? They listed everything that we were doing together on our voyage. Leaving your usual comfort zone. Going to new places. Meeting new peoples and cultures. Observing and questioning. Being curious. Learning. All the stuff we were doing. So why didn't they consider themselves to be an explorer? The answer seemed to hinge on the difference between doing and being. Between laying claim to a title or some status rather than taking part in an activity. For example, one man, a very accomplished attorney, he said that traveling and learning on a comfortable trip like ours was quite legitimate, but he didn't feel it entitled him to claim the title explorer. That was reserved for people like me and the experts on our expedition team who did that for a living as our profession. Of all of the people I talked to, only one guest said yes, she was an explorer because she was curious and willing to go outside of her routine and her comfort zone to learn about new people and places and fields of knowledge. You know, I've thought a lot about those different answers since I've come back from the expedition. And I've discovered that my own thinking is a little split on this point. I can kind of see both sides. This podcast, as you know, takes the view of my explorer lady. Spaceship not required, nor a certain job title, nor some certain percentage of your waking hours. If you're doing these things, being curious, going, testing, learning, you're legitimately an explorer. But another part of me sides with my gentleman friend. I'll give you a personal example. I've flown an F-16 fighter jet. Not just had a ride in it, but actually flown it, and, you know, pretty competently, and several other fighter jets besides. But I would never in a million years call myself an F-16 pilot. I've got too much respect for all the vastly greater expertise and skill that a real F-16 pilot brings to the cockpit. I just managed to not scare anybody or kill anybody. And yeah, I also bristle at folks who bought a joyride to the edge of space and think that entitles them to be called an astronaut. So I'm kind of schizophrenic on this question. But what's your take on it? Do you consider yourself to be an explorer? Do you have a threshold that makes that a yes or no? I think you're exploring if you're tuning into this podcast even a little bit. And I hope you'll keep exploring. Have a happy new year. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to Kathy Sullivan Explorers. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.